Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. Hello, this is Brexit Means, The Guardian's weekly audio dispatch from all singing, all dancing and very festive Brexit land. For this, our final episode of the year, we thought it might be an idea to take stock of the past 12 months and look forward to the next. What were the key Brexit turning points in 2017? And what, as far as anyone can tell, of course, is 2018 likely to bring? So, what were the moments that really mattered this year? There were, of course, plenty to choose from. From the resignation of Sir Ivan Rogers, arguably about the only British diplomat who really understood Brussels back in January, to Theresa May's big Florence speech in September that kick-started those stalled exit talks. From the long-awaited verdict of sufficient progress just this month, to the shock general election, remember that, back in June. From the triggering of Article 50 in March to the Lancaster House speech in January that first laid down the government's core, all-important Brexit red lines. No free movement, no major budget contributions, no jurisdiction for the European Court of Justice, full regulatory autonomy and an independent trade policy. Then, of course, we've had all those slogans. From Brexit means Brexit to deep and special relationship. From strong and stable to smooth and orderly to no cherry picking. From having your cake and eat it to soft, hard, clean, chaotic, even red, white and blue Brexit. From cliff edge to the clock is ticking. From Canada plus and Norway minus to nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. And from a deal that works for everyone to Britain must accept the consequences of its decision. And it is all, of course, very far from over. In fact, as many have said, the hard part is only just now beginning. For now, the British government can no longer dodge the bullet. After haggling since April over the divorce details of citizens' rights, the Irish border and the financial settlement, it is now going to have to say, finally, what it actually wants Britain's post-Brexit relationship with the EU to look like. Since it's far from agreed itself on that question, the next nine months look set to be every bit as exciting as the last. So, with me to pick over the bleached bones of the year that's passed and stare into the tea leaves of the one that's coming, all so you don't have to, are The Guardian's Brexit team of Lisa O'Carroll, Jennifer Rankin and Dan Roberts. Together, we will try and make some sense of it all. So, let's begin, since it is the season of goodwill to all... 
by putting you on the spot, if you don't mind. I'd like to ask you each in turn if there is one moment in the past year that encapsulates Brexit for you. Was it perhaps those unexpected red lines in the Lancaster House speech, the ones that seem to come from nowhere and have dictated pretty much everything ever since? Was it the early triggering of Article 50 that many people feel handed the EU all the cards? Or perhaps the DUP deciding not to play ball over the Irish border at the very last minute? Or something else altogether? Jennifer, let's start with you. What what summed up Brexit for you in 2017? Well, it's it's very tempting, of course, to choose one of those big moments you've mentioned, uh, especially thinking of the the triggering of Article 50 and that big letter day that will go into the history books. But I actually wanted to choose something much more under the radar, and that was um, actually in Geneva rather than Brussels. And I wanted to pick the the moments when the United States joined forces with New Zealand and other countries to reject the UK and EU proposal on rewriting WTO quotas. Hmm. And this is something that has to be agreed once the UK um, leaves the EU because all the existing international agricultural quotas uh, will um, will have to be renegotiated. Wow. And I wanted to pick this up because I think it's, it's emblematic of how complex and how technical Brexit is going to be. And also, secondly, because it, it, I think it was the first time we saw... Brexit on the world stage and the slogans of global Britain running into resistance and all the talk of a beautiful trade deal we had for, from Donald Trump also proving to be uh, to be illusory and yeah. um, really showing that uh, this for me this was the moment when global Britain um, proved to be not quite what it was sold during the, the referendum campaign and ran into the buffers a bit that's a that's a very interesting one thank you very much Dan well, I'm going to cheat and have two uh, just because no one <laughs> believed the first one. So the, the, if you remember back um, the last time David Davis and Michel Barnier sat down in public for these rounds of negotiations in Brussels, they then did them behind the scenes. But there was a, a, a catastrophic photo opportunity where basically the British delegation went in and sat down at a table opposite a European team that was full to the brim with paperwork. They had yeah. all their papers out on the desk like they were well prepared and the Brits came in and they had nothing and they looked terribly sort of uh, empty-handed. And we were assured at the time that it was just, this was a, just a total, you know, it was just a photo opportunity. They had their, their real stuff in their briefcase or something <laughs> and we shouldn't read too much into it even though everybody did. And then what, what I thought was hilarious was that... Um, on the morning that Theresa May flew out with David Davis um, to agree the first phase talks, they sat down for breakfast and there was a photo of almost exactly the same scene, which was Barnier with his folder all ready to go and everything kind of bookmarked and, 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 and orderly. And, and the two flustered ministers from London, hot in from the airport, basically sitting there with empty hands yet again. <laughs> and, you know, you can argue perhaps it's just bad uh, photo management, but I just thought it was utterly symbolic of the shambles that it our preparation and the way we're being taken to clean is by people who do this for a living right okay lisa john i don't think you could beat the moment the dup torpedoed the deal (laughs) um for me it was like a a car crash in slow motion we had been uh, i was in dublin at the time covering it for a couple of weeks and the deal had been signposted early on in the equivalent of the today program on archie's morning ireland then at lunchtime I've been out doorstepping at the government buildings in the freezing cold with Sky News in the morning. <laughs> I then went back to the hotel. At lunchtime, the foreign minister went on radio to say there was going to be a positive statement for the country. And you almost wished that he hadn't gone on radio because he was going to jinx. You sense that, mm. that it was going to be jinx. So back 
get a text to say come back into government buildings. There's going to be a press conference at quarter past two, um, half past two and a quarter past two at this, this stage. You know, all the media is uh, in, in the, the Garda uh, mm. kind of security hut. And we're told to go off and get a cup of coffee or a cup of soup. <laughs> that uh, something had gone on, and, and we speculated something that the lunch had happened. Yeah. The lunch had just uh, May and Junker had uh, sat down late or something, and it just started to unravel. I went across to the hotel and. Funnily enough, ran into Ireland's European Commissioner Phil Hogan, <laughs> um, who kind of whispered, "Oh, there must have been something that Arlene didn't like." Yeah. And threw it off. About an hour later, we discovered that the DUP had scuppered the deal. And I think what what it's done is two things: a, it's re-cemented the DUP into the negotiations when actually they're only a small party in Northern Ireland. They're not the only party in Northern Ireland, as the Irish mm. Taoiseach, um, uh, kept trying to hammer home. But it also crystallises the real problem at the heart of Brexit and the, the, the red lines of uh, that Theresa May has, has set out is to exit the customs union and exit the single market. And mm. that is just irreconcilable mm. with a soft border or no border in Ireland as it is reconcilable with a soft Brexit. And I think it's really interesting in the last 24 hours that we've had Michelle Barnier's interview with Jennifer. Mm. We've had somebody else from the Commission on Newsnight at BBC. We've had the Irish um, ambassador all saying the same thing, mm. which is about customs union single market. Mm. And you can't square that circle. Absolutely. I mean, and I think that's what's what's very interesting uh, about all three of your your little campaign. momentums uh, of your little moments that, that that you've chosen is that there is a common theme among them all, which is to do with basically unrealistic expectations and a collision with reality, which I think. In a way, perhaps that's what will emerge from this episode, is the story of the year. Okay, now, thank you for those. Um, I'd now like to know if you think the year could have gone at all differently. Dan, from the UK's point of view, could, perhaps should, the government have set about this in a different kind of way. Now, you've written, I, you know, I know about how this year has basically looked like one, one long series of concessions from the British side. Have there been mistakes that could have been avoided, things not done that should have been done? Well, I think the big answer is um, uh, not that much. I mean, the real problem was the referendum in terms of setting expectations mm. that, that, that were... The campaign, you mean? Yeah. yeah, the the idea that we could leave painlessly um, is the big problem at the heart of Theresa May's government and one in which I think she deserves some sympathy for. Tactically, could they have gone about it better? Yes, I do think there is no doubt about it. Let's put it this way. They couldn't have gone about it worse. <laughs> um, I think the biggest problem has been that... Um, David Davis approached it with this huge amount of bluster and bravado and basically thought he could bullshit his way through this. Um, he got a lot of people's backs up as a result. He uh, tried to go round the negotiators. He tried to visit all the other capitals, found that they weren't willing to negotiate with him uh, on the side. Um, perhaps he was right to at least try that. But what it did was poison the atmosphere. And, and, and he made it into a zero-sum game. He made it into everything that they didn't want it to be. That, so that basically, um, not only did the, did the Brits have to make a series of concessions but the EU began to feel like it was winning by making them mm. because they were faced with such arrogance on the other side that it almost became uh, you know a badge of pride for them to point out well no this says actually what the rules say and we can't bend and etc etc and one can't help but think that a more grown-up consensual approach to it perhaps had Ivan Rogers been persuaded to stay on uh, as a permanent representative in Brussels and lead the negotiations from the inside mm. might I, have I think made a might have made this less of a zero-sum mm. game yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Yes, um, Jennifer, from from the EU's point of view, on the other hand, I mean, you'd have to say it's all gone pretty smoothly, hasn't it? The twenty seven have managed to hold this this consistent and unified line really since day since the day after the referendum. In fact, I remember sitting with you in the office in Brussels the day after the referendum when we heard the first reference to sort of cherry picking and and not having your cake and eat it and and this kind of thing. And there's hardly been any wobble. It, could could things have gone differently from a EU perspective, do you think? Is there anything that the EU might have wished it had done that it that it didn't, or vice versa? I think at the moment, people, um, there's a general feeling of satisfaction with how the negotiations have gone so far, and the EU has really set the agenda. But I don't think that unity was, was inevitable. And I'm thinking back to those June days after the, the referendum mm. in 2016, there was certainly a lot of nervousness that that Brexit was going to fracture the EU, that it was going to, 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 to split everyone apart. And in those early days, I think maybe that's why you had messages right from the top, from, from Angela Merkel, mm. from Donald Tusk, saying, no cherry-picking, we have to stick together. And, and they, they have managed to, to hold that line. So I think um, while that was, was never inevitable, it's also been, been helped by the fact that the British side have been, have been chaotic and have been making... Uh, extravagant promises about the future. So it's really the, the flip side of what of what Dan is saying. All the all the things that have of course problems for the British side have conversely actually helped to bring the EU together. Because when they've been looking at what um, at the sort of the views from on the other side of the channel, they're just thinking, well, no, that's uh, that's not something we we can possibly agree to. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and Lisa, any thoughts from you? As you were yeah. saying, I mean, you, you know, you spent the, a lot of the first half of this month in Dublin. How how's the process look from there? I mean, I just wanted to mention one, the one quote that I wanted to, 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 uh, to, to, to put into this um, episode actually comes from uh, the TSUC, which I thought was one of the really one of the, the, the sharpest and, 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 and the, uh, they're not really not meanest, but a very accurate uh, quote about the whole process over this year. I mean, he said, uh, last month this thing yeah this thing where he said you know it's been 18 months since the referendum it's 10 years since since people who wanted it started agitating for it and sometimes it just doesn't seem like they thought it all through well i think that sums it up doesn't it that Mm. is that it was harsh but um we now know how how different um the the different strategy that um he decided to embark upon he was Mm. elected in the summer um, as leader of the party, mm. um, uh, following Enda Kenny, who had a very, very different style. Um, but there was so. So in Ireland, I think the feeling is, and I spoke to people on the border yesterday for a piece we're doing this week. There is a feeling of great relief and great relief on the border that they well, was think, even though it's not, it's not. Mm. It, there's nothing concrete about this. The issue has been kicked down the road, um, but people at the border feel like life's going to go on as normal, and mm. that. You know, they say this. I was speaking to people who, who about cross-border shopping, mm. and they say they've seen an uplift in sales. That people, you know, it's a, it's about confidence. There's it's about a bit more confidence, confidence. A bit more yeah. confidence. On the other hand, I know you're also speaking to EU citizens. You, you've you've spoken to a lot of uh, EU citizens here and British nationals on the continent. You know, we're, everybody's sort of applauded the the end of this phase one and the fact that talks are moving on to the to sort of transition and 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 future trade. Are those people who are, in the first instance, at least, the most directly affected by Brexit? Are, are, are they feeling confident about the future? No, and I don't think they feel a relief. And I think there's been um, an unfortunate sort of sleight of hand in relation to the deal for EU citizens. Even yesterday, we had Amber, the Home Secretary, mm. emailing 
all of those who elected to get updates. Um, I just spoke to one, a Finnish woman mm. who had been threatened with deportation and she referred to the letter as smarmy. So it's a kind mm. of happy Christmas. We uh, know you're anxious, but we've done the deal. Um, we've had your back all along. And it's, a, it's, it's to say it's spin is generous. Um, it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's an untruth. Um, it's a distortion of the truth. The deal hasn't been done. Mm. There are issues. The e- e- citizens in the UK are still terribly concerned about this settler status and anything to do with the Home Office because of the error rate and because mm. of the process in, in the Home Office. And all the cases that you've highlighted. Yeah. And then, as we said mm. before, the, the, the um, British citizens in Europe mm. are terribly worried about um, not having freedom of movement. Mm. But yeah. there, w- there was one thing that I, I think was yeah. worth talking about in terms of could anything have happened differently? And yeah. I think one thing that could have happened differently is the Labour Party could have had a much, much stronger policy hmm. because of its own divisions hasn't had the confidence, has been unsure. And the best we've had from Keir Starmer, which was applauded at the time by Remainers, was that the Labour Party wanted the UK to stay in the customs union single market during the transition period only. And I think that will be that will come back to bite them. Hmm. Yeah. Dan, could the, the Labour Party could have could have led us to a different outcome, do you think? Um Yes, I, I completely agree with Lisa that that was the dog that didn't bite. And you can... Uh, Imagine what um, a, a different opposition would have done to Theresa May at the dispatch box mm. in Prime Minister's Questions this year had it been willing to go for the jugular on the mess that is Brexit. Um, and, and, and I'm not one of those who thinks that Jeremy Corbyn is not competent at the dispatch box. I think he can be extremely persuasive on the issues that matter to him and that he feels passionate about. But on this one, he chose not to no. not to debate. No. I would say, though, in his defence and her defence, that the reason they fudge it, it goes back to the the referendum and goes back to all the issues and Labour even more acutely than the Tories is split on freedom of movement and many of them marginal constituencies they feel voted heavily um, for, for um, voted for leave but not just for leave for leave's sake but because they're worried about immigration yeah. and so that makes the single market particularly toxic for Labour because of its requirement to stay within freedom of movement Okay well that was the year that was thank you for that um, for the time being though obviously we are where we are talks begin early next year on the transition period uh, and preliminary discussions are also due to start on the shape sort of global outline of of a future trade deal. Formal talks, of course, not expected to get underway until March. But Lisa, as you mentioned, um, you know, there are several wrinkles still to be ironed out from the divorce phase of the of the talks. You mentioned um, citizens' rights, but the Irish border hasn't been sorted at all, has it? I mean, so that this Article 50 agreement now has to be codified, put into a kind of a, a legally binding accord. Do you think that still poses the risk of a, you know, of a, of a serious spanner in the works? Could the whole thing break down because of an, an inability to actually tie down in legally acceptable words what's been apparently agreed in this first phase? In, in Northern Ireland, I think, I think yes, because it comes back to this issue of customs union and single mm. market being irreconcilable with no border. The interesting thing about the deal that they did in the end after the DUP intervention was the... Clause 49 in the agreement um, basically guaranteed uh, uh, north-south alignment, but it was Clause 50, which is brand new, which guaranteed east-west alignment. So that suits the Republic Mm -hmm. as well as Northern Ireland parties. And that's where it's going to come unstuck because those two paragraphs are irreconcilable. But so too is, you know, the whole UK, UK looking for, for instance, now looking to do trade deals during the transition period. Yeah, well, I was going to come on to the transition period, actually. Yeah, I mean, that's... A, so that's it's, a, like, it's like the, the, the British, uh, the, the Tories and the Brexiteers are just deaf and 
deliberately so mm. deaf to everything mm. that, that mm. Um, they're being told mm. about the practicalities. Just, just briefly, um, Jennifer, on what's been agreed in in phase one, from where the EU stands, what do you think are the main possible wrinkles in that agreement, which, as we know, is relatively sort of loosely worded and, and has to be tied up in legal terms? Is the EU expecting any trouble still from that direction? Well, not not trouble exactly, but but um, negotiators do stress that it's that there's been an agreement on sufficient progress, but that doesn't mean everything. So yes, there are there are issues um, concerning citizens' rights, and the EU still wants to push for the right um, for um, for citizens in the EU citizens in the UK to to bring future spouses and husbands and wives partners mm. to the UK, um, which is something that hasn't been agreed. There is this issue of onward movement that uh, that Lisa mentioned for the for the British uh, nationals in the EU 27, that they would like to, the right to be able to move to other EU countries. Otherwise, I understand the deal. They still I mean, they do have the right to move freely over the over the borders. Mm. But um, and then there are the whole sort of basket of what we call the other issues, which, which get a lot less attention, but are extremely uh, technical and, and demanding, such as Euratom, mm. uh, such as judicial cooperation, such as data protection. And many of these have actually really not been discussed very much so far in the process. So it's easy to forget that while well, we, we have this impression that we're moving on to trade talks and phase one has been tied up, there's still actually a lot of technical work on, on phase one uh, to do. Yeah, that killer phrase, nothing is agreed until everything is agreed, might actually really mean something. And the Commission, uh, Jennifer, you you probably hear this quite a lot, is that the uh, Commission people also say that they can't understand why the narrative in the UK is just about a trade deal. People are talking about a future trade deal, when, as you say, it covers the entire relationship. Mm. It includes security, it includes defence, it includes Mm. things like Horizon 2020, Mm. future EU funding, will Britain buy into it? Um, Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, Jennifer, I just wanted to move on to the transition deal, because that's the next top priority for for discussions beginning in the new year. Now, you you had, we've mentioned it already, this this, this long and very revealing interview with Michel Barnier, the the, the EU's chief uh, negotiator this week. He was very uh, clear about what the EU will accept in terms of a transition agreement, wasn't he? What he basically... Yeah, he was, he was extremely clear. And it is worth stressing that when we asked about transition, the very first thing he said was, uh, well, it, it's not a given. Mm. Transition is is done on the same basis of Article 50. So in essence, you have to agree that the withdrawal agreement and the transition, you, you can't do the two separately. Uh, so he was stressing, you know, this isn't in the bag yet. We've still got to complete Article 50. And then when it came on to the substance of transition, he was very clear on um, what the EU's red lines were, that transition means accepting the body of EU law, lock, stock and barrel, down to every single last regulation and directive, including those that will be agreed after 2019, once the the UK has left the EU, which will be a very bitter pill, I think, for everyone to swallow, not just the the arch uh, Brexiteers, but also um, um, politicians, people who voted Remain, who are used to the UK playing a very influential role in, in shaping EU legislation. So I think this could be this will be a very sort of politically uh, toxic time. This this period of transition. I mean, do you see problems coming from that from from that direction? Is is what the EU's vision of this transition period or, or implementation period, as as Theresa May prefers to call it, is is that going to work here? There's awareness of the sensitivities because um, Leo Varadkar at his 
uh, press conference last week after the summit, he said he didn't think it would be good for either side to be stuck in this long limbo of transition. And um, and he actually said the transition has to be limited to no more than two years, which I thought was very interesting coming from, from the Irish government, considering they had previously looked for a, a longer a much agreement, longer perhaps even yeah. five years. Yeah, Dan, from the UK perspective, um, how's the transition period going to... I think it's going to be very hard to swallow, but I don't think we've got any choice for the simple reason that if we spend too much time negotiating the terms of the transition, we don't have any time left to negotiate what comes after Mm. it, which will be a permanent state of affairs. So it's going to be um, a take-it-or-leave-it deal from from the EU, and one in which you've already seen Jacob Rees-Mogg talk about Britain being reduced to a vassal state. Um, I think that's putting it politely. I mean, I've heard privately British officials are talking about it being the gimp suit Brexit, that basically Britain will be like in bondage for the period of this transition. And I think it's going to really ram home the point that we are rule takers and that uh, that we're giving up an awful lot by leaving without gaining anything. I mean, in a way... If you had to script it as a Remainer, as a sort of morality tale for for just how insanely stupid leaving is, the transition period of two years where we gain nothing and lose everything is about as sort of, you know, on the nail as it's going to possibly get. So and yet the government's trapped into it because it can't waste time on this two years when it's got the rest it, of it, it eternity needs to move to on absolutely to that to that all important future relationship it's been clear really all this year that this whole question of this whole sort of conundrum of access versus control single market access versus taking back control you know has has yet to be resolved in the cabinet and broadly Half the cabinet, you can call them what you like, the aligners, the pragmatists, the the soft Brexiters, uh, whatever. Half of them want to favour single market access. They want to stick with EU regulations at the cost of control over laws and borders. And the other half, the divergers, the hardliners, the Brexiteers, whatever, they want to privilege those independent trade deals, that regulatory autonomy, taking back control, and they're prepared to sacrifice single market access to that end or privileged single market access to that end and somehow they're going to have to reach an accommodation and in the meantime Jennifer I mean the EU's position looks really very clear already doesn't it I mean Barnier was circulating a fascinating slide uh, which a few people have been tweeting um, this week at the summit last week which basically made crystal clear why the UK's famous red lines make a straightforward trade deal the only really the only possible option something along the lines of you know th- those deals that were struck between the EU and Canada or or Japan you know perhaps with a few sort of non-economic add-ons things like judicial cooperation and security and defense but I mean he also made that very clear to you didn't he Jennifer I believe that there really is a, there is only one way this trade deal can go really Yes, I mean, I think there there was a very blunt message because the the EU see the choice is very simple, and it does come down to that that access versus uh, sovereignty trade off. But either either you choose something along the lines of Norway, where you have very deep access, but you cede the right to make trade deals to to remove yourself from the European Court of Justice, or you go for something like Canada, like Korea, this kind of free trade agreement where you're much further away and you have much poorer access into the into the EU market and for the EU this is the crux of it that there are a very limited number of models on the shelf 
but the UK will insist and keeps insisting that it can have a special bespoke arrangement. It can mm. it can choose different elements from all the models. But the message we've heard again and again and reiterated from Michelle Barnier is no, that's that's just not going to be on offer. Yeah, um, I mean, Lisa, do you see this as a circle that can be squared? Um, there was a very in- interesting interview, wasn't there, with Tony Tony Decker Aikenhead's heads interview with Tony Blair, who had some, you know, as I know, it's not done to listen to Tony Blair, but he had, he remained, he has some very very interesting ideas still. Well, I I, I, to- I, I think. Uh, what it does is focus the mind on the question are we now agreed that Bre- the Brexit train is unstoppable or is mm. there any um, chink left for Tony Blair and whoever he can mobilise to stop Brexit I mean he made some interesting points again he was talk- uh, talking quite a lot about the Labour Party but his view is that everything is still to play for and it's not over till it's over mm. Dan from the you from, look again looking from the from the English uh, British angle English uh, you know, where, Engl- a, yeah. where it is pretty much an English question you're right uh, the UK angle Theresa May does still seem to be absolutely set on pushing for uh, I mean the crux of the matter really pushing for a type of Brexit model that the EU has basically said is not on offer. The question really is, can the British cabinet government agree on something that the EU will accept without blowing itself up in the process? Well, I think um, Lisa's point about um, uh, this is not over until it's over. <laughs> it's an important one. It's only today, literally as we are recording this podcast, the Cabinet are meeting for the first time in 18 months since the referendum to discuss what our future relationship with Europe should be. And that's not by accident. That's not more incompetence or misjudgment. That's a deliberate strategy by Theresa May to kick the can down the road because it's so unpalatable to, to grasp with these contradictions that we've all been talking about for the last year. Um When that happens, some interesting things then flow from that. Choices have to be made about what our priorities are as a country. Um, That's why I thought um, Jennifer's interview with Michel Barnier was so well-timed this morning. It wasn't so much that he was saying anything particularly new, but it was he was saying it as the cabinet was sitting down to pretend that he wasn't saying it. (laughs) And and that, I think, is where it gets interesting from here on out. if the Philip Hammond wing, we're led to believe, who favour something very close to single market mm. membership, if, the if they prevail, what is the point? I mean, we're going to have a trial run of that during the transition. We're going to see that there is no point, that actually it's just lose-lose. Um, on the other hand, if the the other side, the only, the only logical conclusion for them to go, if there is no sort of red, white and blue Brexit just around the corner, the only logical conclusion for them is the clean Brexit, is the sort of walk away, the terrifying jump off the cliff, which we now know even the Prime Minister really doesn't want to do, because I think she, we, we saw her blink at, yeah. in the first phase. So that's where these two positions crumble down into. You lose all the nonsense about red, white and blue, and you get left between, do we... Do we ask the country one way or another uh, to rethink this, or do we jump off the cliff and yeah. uh, into the yeah. into the oblivion? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it. Gets interesting. There's it's, no it's hiding. There's no hiding. Um, uh, Jennifer, just briefly, is it going to get interesting at all on the uh, on the EU 27 end of this? Is it possible, in other words, that you know the EU's unity might be tested a little bit more in these trade talks than it was during the the, the divorce talks, or is that kind of firmness and uh, and, and sense of, of of clear direction uh, that that Michel Barnier displayed in his interview with you um, is that set to be maintained? 
I think it's un- undoubtedly true that the um, the EU's unity will be tested much more over the over the coming year than it has been over the divorce issues, when all the, the different economic interests of each country will come to the fore. But but talking about this very question to a, a diplomat uh, yesterday, he, he was saying to me, well, it's it, it's not a, it's not a good thing for the UK if the if the EU is disunited because it makes the whole process slower and mm. everyone still faces that cliff edge deadline. So it's not really in the UK's interest if there is um, and if there is disunity and splits all over the, the EU. But I think it certainly will be more difficult. And it seems to me one of the reasons why the choice is so binary for Barnier and his team is because maybe it's it's also simpler as well yes. for them to say, well, you know, these are the models the UK has to choose, and, and we're not yes. changing our uh, changing our rules to accommodate the EU, uh, the UK rather, because that would be that could open up a, a Pandora's box. Uh, exactly. It's it, it, yeah uh, uh, presenting. The UK with a with a sort of defined set of possibilities just basically keeps a whole loads of different cans of worms sealed that might otherwise be opened. I thought we were kicking cans down the road. I think we're on that <laughs> we've got almost we've got metaphors as bad coming as the in from everywhere. <laughs> all right. Oh, okay. Well, listen. Thanks very much, all of you. I just had one final question just before you head off to your mince pies and your few well-deserved days off before the madness starts all over again. Um, in a very few words, please. Uh, crystal ball time. Imagine us that we're all sitting here in precisely a year's time. Where are we Brexit-wise, Dan? I'm going to stick my neck out and I'd say I'm going to go against the prevailing wisdom. I don't think this government survives. I don't think those contradictions that we just talked about are palatable, said out in the open. Uh, And I think that um, we will be looking um, at a very different political landscape in a year's time. Any more climbing down and she's she's fallen off the ladder. (laughs) Lisa? Well, I was going to say I think that the um, issue of the customs union and the single market is going to crumble and I think that is the that is the the Tory psychodrama that is mm. to come in the next few months, I think it's it's just untenable. Um, it's it's as Dan says, it's the cliff edge yeah, chaos, yeah, which yeah. is also uh, highly undesirable. Yeah, um, it, where where ideology meets meets reality. Yeah, really. yeah, exactly. Um, so Jennifer, where are we in a year's time? I think it will be uh, there, there will be some kind of outline uh, deal in place which will cause everyone to ask the question, you know, why, are we, why are we doing this in the first place? What does sovereignty really mean? And, and it, doesn't really feel, it won't feel to many people like we've taken back control at all, to coin the phrase. So, mm. uh, so I think uh, the, de- the debate of the referendum will really be, we'll be having the debate uh, we should have had uh, two years Before earlier. Before the referendum, absolutely. And that, that question of what Brexit actually means um, will still be unanswered. Well, I'm sure it's all going to be very entertaining. That is it now for the time being. Thank you very much, Dan, Jennifer, Lisa, for joining me. We're all off now for Christmas and the New Year, but we will be putting our Brexit means on tech and Brexit next week. So please do listen to that. In the meantime, please subscribe, review on all your favourite podcatchers. Join the discussion on Twitter. Uh, You just need to search for Guardian Podcasts. Till next week then, I'm John Henley. The producer was Rowan Slaney. This was Brexit Means. Thank you all very much for listening and a very cheery festive season to all of you, despite it all. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A third of students are less than happy about their university choice. New research by EY has revealed. The findings suggest that a digital rethink is essential to meet the expectations of students and staff. Universities can address this by putting the needs of the people they serve at the heart of their digital strategies. Learn more about the future of human-centered higher education at theguardian.com forward slash transforming higher education. This message was paid for by EY.